To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? Got a brand new Eastman's Elevated for you. Uh, so I've been really excited to release this one to you. This is a conversation I had with Robbie Denning. I met Robbie at the Western Hunting Summit. Uh, it, it was uh, real clear and evident when I first met him that he's an absolute mule deer fanatic. So me and Robbie hit it off. We've kept in touch. Uh, I asked him to be on the podcast and then I scheduled it to be a long podcast as I knew it would be full of great insight into hunting mule deer. So. I really enjoyed this conversation. I mean, the the, the weight of what Robbie's telling us about hunting mule deer, it, it, it's just, it's super clear in the way I hunt them and I can just hear the experience. Like it takes years of hunting mule deer, it takes years of, of making mistakes and striking out and finding mule deer and, and, and learning their tendencies and behaviors and habitat. and. Um, so, so this is just a, a great podcast with great insight into mule deer. I uh, really enjoyed it, and I know you guys are going to enjoy it too. Oh, also make sure to check out Robbie Denning's book, Hunting Big Mule Deer. Uh, it's a great read. It's really well written, and it's really informative with tons of great insight into hunting mule deer. I also want to thank my sponsors for today's show. I want to thank Cutter Stabilizers. So I've been using cutter stabilizers for the last handful of years and I'm super impressed. They're the best stabilizers I've ever used. Uh, they're, they're built out of carbon fiber and the carbon fiber is a small diameter. And so that small diameter will help cut the wind on a, a windy day so it won't affect your hold as much. And these stabilizers, he builds them in all different sizes uh, to fit your needs. I shoot a 15 inch out front, a 12 inch out back, uh, he tried to get me to try out a 20 inch the last time I saw him and I won't try it because every time I try a longer stabilizer my bow aims a little bit better and I'm at about my max now with 15 out front and 12 in back but they have all different sizes. I mean I started with a, a 12 inch out front and a 10 inch in back. There's tons of different combinations but these stabilizers they really affect the hold of your bow. Uh, the, the hold and the aim just really seems to slow down. And then they also help the reaction of the bow. You can stick different weights on the front. Uh, if, if you're getting a lot of high hits, you can stick a lot of uh, weight on the front. Uh, if you're getting a lot of low hits, you can take some weight off the front or stick it on the back. And you can really play around with it and fine tune it and fine tune the angles to find the perfect hold, perfect reaction to build a really forgiving shooting bow. Uh, so if you're in the market for some new stabilizers, make sure to check out Cutter. I also want to thank Matthews Bows. Uh, so impressed by Matthews Bows. Uh, these last three years, I mean the last five years have killed it, but the last three years, the the Verdicts and the VXR and now the V3. Uh, the V3 is so forgiving, it's so quiet. Uh, it, it holds a tune throughout the season. Like I'll check my tune at the end of the year, you know, well, I'm, I'm always shooting arrows, but I'll shoot it through paper at the end of the year when I'm setting up my next bow and it's still shooting a bullet hole. It carries that tune all the way through season and different temperatures, different moisture. Uh, so once it's set up and I set everything, like set my set screws, uh, I just know that I can trust it in the back country and that it's, it's going to hold its tune and, and shoot well for me. 
Uh, they make a real forgiving bow. Um, the the groups I'm able to shoot out of this thing to be able to set up a a hunting bow for me at and set it up at 70 pounds in my hunting arrows and and go indoors and and shoot you know above 295 shoot a 299 with it uh it, it is amazing it's it's just a great shooting bow uh i love shooting these things and and the v3 has already been so good to me this season and will continue to be good to me for the rest of the season so super impressed if you're in the market for a new bow make sure to check out these matthews they just build shooters with that over there at Eastman's, make sure to check out our videos. We just released uh, released an old video of mine uh, in the Idaho backcountry, and so it's a high country hunt, um, hunting for uh, velvet mule deer. Uh, we release an episode each and every week, um, so make sure to tune into that. Just on YouTube, search Eastman's Hunting TV, and you'll see that pop up. And we have some great new episodes that are coming up too that I'm super excited about. Uh, so make sure to check those out. You can also check us out. Uh, on the Outdoor Channel, Eastman's Hunting TV. Um, check out uh, the magazines, Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal, Eastman's Hunting Journal, Tag Hub, the internet research tool. Uh, we're really trying to put out the information to help you guys be better hunters and, and to be more successful. And if you do harvest a trophy this year, make sure to take some good pictures and send the story to us over there at Eastman's uh, to hopefully get published in the magazine there and, and get some free gear. So, um, yeah, with that... Man, I'm getting these podcasts out. Um, I'm out the door. I've got another high country muley hunt that I'm really looking forward to. And so um, I'm going to go embark on that. So I, I think I'm going to – it's 3.15 in the afternoon now. I'm just finishing my list of things to do. It's always so tough to get out of town. But I'm about there. All my gear's packed up. Uh, i got my really good buddy Dan coming down. We're going to team up on this one. So I'm um, just super excited to get started. And so – you know, just want to make sure I've got all those those little things dialed and have my head right. And uh, looks like we're going to be battling some weather and battling some storms. But uh, that's that's what high country hunting is, or that's what hunting is in general. Is um, uh, you're going to face adversity on these hunts and have to be ready for it. But oh man, to say I'm excited would be a huge understatement. I absolutely can't wait. So enjoy this podcast, guys. It's a great one with Robbie Denning. And um, man, yeah, let's get into it. Uh, I'm your host, Brian Barney, Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. Yep. Um, well, yeah, I think um, I think we just get into it and start talking mule deer. We got two mule deer fanatics together. Um, I think it'll go pretty good. Yeah, dude, I, I, I get fired up listening to your podcast. You start talking about muleys. I've been a longtime listener, so glad to be on there, and let's roll. Alrighty. Sounds good. Well, um, Robbie, you are an absolute killer. Uh, I have really enjoyed your book. Um, it is really well written and well thought out all the way through from front to back, man. It's just amazing. Well, thanks for taking the time to read it. That was my 30-year journey of mule deer right there, and um, I, I threw my heart and soul into it, and I'm glad to hear that guys like you were enjoying it. Oh, my gosh. You did throw your heart and soul into it. It's got to be tough to to organize all those thoughts and all that knowledge that you've gained over the years. You know, you know the way I did it is um, on my blog on Rockslide. I just started um, getting my thoughts together like back in 2012, and just every time— a subject would come together like, I don't know, stalking mule deer or um, hunting bucks in the cover and stuff like that. I'd write a blog post on it. 
And so after I did that for about three or four years, you know, I had a really good foundation to write from. And, you know, blog posts are kind of short, but I was able to take that that subject matter and then really expand upon it. And that's the great thing about having a, a book. You know, you, you know, you can write in a magazine or on a blog. You know, people don't want to read 9,000 words, you know, so you got to kind of keep things uh, dialed in. We're on a book. You have that that format. I think my book was like 75,000 words. So you, you kind of have that format where you can write you know, long, long uh, way on it. And that, that really allowed me to go deep on some of this stuff that I'd thought about for years. Oh, that makes total sense to be able to go longhand. That's why I enjoy writing. Like you're, you're able to script these thoughts and then you're able to go back through them and have it say exactly what you want it to say and how you want to say it. You know, it's like a, a podcast, it kind of just comes out and you, you say what's on the top of your mind. But when you get to go back and think of all that stuff and then have it in that long form writing, you know, where you can get that complete thought out, uh, that that's got to be a fulfilling and also daunting uh, experience. It was, dude. But you know what? It only took me like three and a half months to write that book, because once I had that foundation and then I could just jump into it and expand on each of those topics, you know, longhand, like you said, it just flowed. It just really did. And, and man, it was, it was, I don't know if I could do it again, Brian. I remember I'd get the, get the wife and kids off uh, for the day and I'd have about two hours where I could write before I had to get to my regular job, you know, plus all my other rock slide responsibilities. Dude, I, I remember that was kind of my mo- most focused two hours of, of, gosh, almost my life. And I just, I just had a lot in me, and I wanted to get it down, and, and it just started flowing. So I don't want to make it sound like it was just some laborious thing. It really it was kind of the opposite. But I have not been able to get back in that groove since then. I'd really like to do another book. I'm actually working on another one. But, you know, life is crazy, and, you know, to get everything together where you can get down and focus like that, and, and, and the great thing about writing, I learned this from Michael Hyatt, he's an author, is that, that, you know, when you have stuff in your brain, but until it passes through your fingertips to paper, a lot of times you don't even know what's there. And you don't even have the clarity to organize it until you start writing. And I think that's why the art of writing will never go away. I mean, I love podcasts. I was so excited to come on this one. Um, I love video. I love doing do, doing video reviews and, you know, vi- uh, you know fil- short films and stuff like that. But there's just something about writing that gets you ultra-focused and helps you organize your thoughts that in really no other way have I been able to do it. Oh, you describe it perfectly, Robbie. Like, that's what it is. Finding that flow state. Sometimes you don't even know it's all in there until it comes out on paper. But uh, to anybody listening, I recommend Robbie's book. It is absolutely the best mule deer book I've ever read. Like, uh, if that doesn't get you fired up uh, before season, you better check your pulse. Like, uh, that thing is absolutely awesome. So uh, uh, kudos to you, man. That is a great read. Thank, dude, thank you so much for, for saying that. that. That means a lot. Yep, absolutely. So um, you can tell by the book and you can tell anytime you get speaking or talking about mule deer, you're so passionate about it, but uh, you do all the little things necessary. And so, like, I really liked hearing your speech at the Western Hunting Summit. It was so thorough. Like, you love to chase giant bucks, but you put everything into it and, and, and you hunt all different weapon types. Um, again, like maybe uh, describe to the listeners why you hunt with all different weapons in your all opportunity. 
Well, um, as as it's gotten harder and harder to, to create opportunities for, for, for big mule deer, um, I, I just, I mean, I love bow hunting. I, some of my, my, you know, I've taken three big bucks with my bow. They are probably the, my, my most memorable hunts in, in, in a way. You know, just being in close like that. You know this, Brian. There's just something about being in close on a big mule deer that you just don't get to do it very often as part of it. And, you know, rifle, you can create more opportunity. Muzzleloader, in a way, you can create more opportunity. But to, to get in and close and, and, and watch a buck blink, you know, with your naked eye, you can see him blinking. You can see him breathing. You can see his ribs expand and, and, and collapse as, as he's breathing. You can hear him chewing. Those are just so memorable of experiences. But it, t to me, there's really only about 20 good days of mule deer hunting, you know, between roughly early September and late September. And, you know, then after that, I mean, you can still get it done. I mean, you do. You've, you've killed bucks on late buck hunts and everything. But it just gets harder. And by that time, I've got other opportunities with rifle coming up. And so really what led me to, to, to hunt mule deer big mule deer with all weapon types is just to create more opportunity um and 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 give me better odds of pulling tags you know if i was a a single weapon hunter man i just don't think i could get enough deer hunting and and plus big bucks are hard at least they have been for me and you know i did i did the math on on my first 10 years of hunting and it was taking me roughly you know 30 to 40 days to, to tip over a big buck hunting days you know well that might take a, a season or two to accumulate that much and so by going multi-weapon it's given me multi multiple opportunities in the draws every year and then once the fall hits you know i can hunt september october november i you know i don't hunt the whole month obviously but you know it g gives me those different times to hit mule deer with 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 the different weapons because like i said there's that 20 days of archery season that i think a big buck is really vulnerable and then as they move into the cover you know you've got basically october 1st through you know roughly november 10th that they're in the cover for the most part and that's a rifle that's where a rifleman can be the most effective and so you know i want to i want to get a week or two of hunting in that time as well and then we get into the rut and it's pretty dang hard to pull rifle rut tags but i've i've had a few and i've had a few muzzleloader rut tags and been able to capitalize on those opportunities just because of 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 how a buck's behaving that time of year they're out of the cover and and you just get a chance to look at more bucks and 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 hone in on bigger bucks at that time and so you know long answer there brian but it gives me the most opportunity if i focused on all the weapon types man i love it like um we all find our own path and our own journey and so like uh uh, definitely your journey and Pat, like you don't hunt elk, you don't hunt any other species. You love hunting mule deer and you love hunting big ones. And it's, it, it's taking every chance and every opportunity you can to get to the mountains and go chase them. And, and that's the key to this deal is, is getting enough days, um, you know, in days in different parts of the season. And, and I love that, that early season you described, uh, those bucks are so susceptible. It's a great season to really focus your energy on as they bachelor herd up and they they hang together. And so you can really find the biggest one in a mountain range. And then they have that that lax summertime attitude where they're up in the middle of the day and you know, will kind of graze around and, uh, you know, they bed in more open terrain where you can really keep tabs on them and get good stocks. And then just like you say, it gets tougher, but, 
you know, I, I like it as they move down to that secondary living. It gets, um, you know, less pressure. That's more of a rifle season for sure. But uh, I still like chasing them with a bow during that season. They're just tougher to bed in an exact spot. And so what I end up doing is like hunting them more in their feeding features where, uh, you know, I'm, I'm watching them and I try to put them away to bed, but I don't know exactly where they bed and I can't sneak up on that spot. So I've got to play it for like the afternoon evening where they'll come out, you know, and then like you say, those, those rut hunts are so special, man. That is just action. It just doesn't get any better for a big muley than chasing them during the rut, you know, really focusing on the doe numbers, uh, the bucks are traveling country. And it seems like some of those bucks that are so good at hiding the rest of the year, they make some mistakes, they show themselves, but I still find like during that rut, you know, these bucks have like, uh, uh, these ranges or these places where they rut and, and they don't get to be five, six, seven years old by rutting around roads or rut, rutting where people can see them with a, a pair of binos right. or a scope out the, out the window. Like they seem to find these rutting grounds that are away from human pressure. And that's kind of how they get to grow up. Do you find that as well when you're hunting those hunts that, that these bucks like will find these rutting grounds that are away from human pressure? Uh, yeah, the best bucks do because if if they didn't learn that when they were two and three years old, they're yeah. dead, and they didn't they didn't pass on those genes, and you know what I mean. So so yeah, when when the rut rolls around, and I think sometimes that's where we get tripped up a little bit. We think, oh, it's the rut, you know, it should be easy. Well, it's easier to see deer, and and it's certainly easier to see bucks, but it's still hard to get the big bucks because. You know, I, I always talk about secure does. You got to go where the where the secure does are, and by that I mean, you know, there'll be does down in the alfalfa fields. There'll be does, you know, in the uh, up off the road that goes straight to the campground. You know, the easy spots. And sometimes I used to spend too much time looking at those does. Like, hey, it's the rut. It's the rut. Big buck's gonna come in here. I know he is. Well, it took me about ten years to figure out. You know what? I go walk around those does. At daylight and sure enough there's been a big buck in there and he's gone before the sun is up you know i see his tracks so i kind of started figuring out that those those older bucks are not going to mess with those does um on average in in, in shooting light but as i started you know and I, you know i'm not talking 10 miles in you know i'm just talking about getting away from where they're not getting bothered constantly that's where those you increase your hunting time because now you could see a buck at 10.30 in the morning. You could see a buck at, at noon. You could see a buck at 1 p.m. You can see a buck at 3 o'clock coming around those does. And so and, and you, you got to get where, where they're not getting hassled. And then, then you have to also be, in, be able to look at enough does. You can't just camp on the same, same does either. I've got goofed up doing that too, you know, like spending all my time looking at, at one little canyon that's got a little herd of does in it. And after about four days, I'm realizing, you know what, I'm seeing all the same bucks here, you know. I, and so as I've gotten better at it, I figured out how to, how to check, how to check on does, you know, check, f find multiple, multiple doe groups. And, you know, that big buck I killed with my muzzleloader a couple of years ago, that's really what I was doing is it was first time in the unit and just my friend was helping me. He's like, hey, there's always does here. There's always does here. And I just like a trap line. I started setting it up like, okay, I'm going to check on these does and then I'm not going to spend all morning here. I'm going to hurry up and, you know, get, you know, the weather was a little bit warm. I'm like, you know, these, these does will lay down later. I'm going to get over there before they look, before they lay down. And that was really our routine. I didn't even make it to opening night and I killed a big buck um, because I was spending, spending times around 
the does that weren't just continually getting hassled by everything. Robbie, you describe you describe like uh, uh, what takes years of hunting mule deer to, to figure out. Like um, I've done the all those same things that you described to me, I've done countless times. I've camped on does waiting for a big buck to show up, and, and, <laughs> and they're just not there. They don't live in those drainages. That's not where the big buck's rutting grounds are. They're not ever going to show up there, you know? And, and – um, just like you stated, finding those does that are unbothered, and and you're right, it doesn't have to be ten miles back. Sometimes it's it's just uh, 500 feet up a ridgeline, looking at a drainage that nobody looks at, but you you find these places where those does like, where they're unbothered, and also you have to find like the country where the big bucks can grow up. That's kind of connected to those rutting grounds, you know, whether that's a a mountain range or secluded basins or whatever it is. It seems like there's a sanctuary for these. Big big bucks to hang out before they rut almost in the staging grounds or in their summer grounds they've got to have a place where they don't get bothered where they can grow old and then they they come and breed these does and i loved um like when you killed that buck with your muzzle loader like checking different groups but not camping on the same group checking these does for when that buck was going to show up man that is so smart so so like uh when you're when you're locating these deer like um I know you use like a multitude of tactics do you like to find a master vantage point or do you use a, a mobile vantage point or or what would you say your tactics are for like um early season to late season do they change or are they the same I know that's a lot of questions but well let's break it down dude because I, I think I think they're all good questions and you know my main tactic is is scouting that's really my main tactic and that's what I'm doing right now I mean what are we August 4th um, I, I started on the uh, 2nd of July this year I probably have about 15 days total already so basically I've scouted half the month I'm up to 43 bucks that I found and the gold standard for me is to find one buck to hunt and just focus on him and you know and that's going to depend on your state like if you're in Colorado you you know you 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 find an archery buck you're not going to have a rifle tag in the same area but you know Idaho and Wyoming and you know Montana gives that kind of opportunity where you can hunt with your bow and if you don't get them you can hunt with your rifle so I'm always trying to do that you know because I know it takes a lot of days to kill these bucks and so so right now I'm trying to find the buck and if I find the buck and I, let's just say I find him in, 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 in living in two different drainages with a big ridge between them and a bunch of finger ridges coming off of them. Um, I'm just going to note that, okay, he's there. I'll be there for archery season, and I will use a master vantage point then. I will, I will try to stay back, bide my time, look for a good opportunity to stalk him. You know, you, you've probably seen this, Brian. These big bucks, sometimes they'll be with a, a whole batch herd of bucks, which can be hard to stalk. And then all of a sudden the next day, they're all by themselves or they're with a two point. You know, I, I like to be on a master vantage point to watch that because, you know, I'm, I'm probably not going to stalk in on on him when he's got seven other bucks, you know, and they're bedding out on a on a little a little knob on a finger ridge and, you know, everybody's facing every direction. All I'm going to do is run them off. Um, um, but you know, I'll watch those day, those deer a day or two or three, it usually doesn't take four and all of a sudden, man, I'll catch him alone. Like he might be with the bucks in the morning, but you know, five of them little suckers will head up on some big open hillside to feed till 10 o'clock in the morning. Cause it's kind of cool. And he'll, he'll take a two point and a four point and he'll head down to the bottom of the ridge and he'll, he'll bed at the edge of the timber. 
there's my chance right there. And so I need to have a master vantage point to be able to do that. But let's just say I get, and this happens some years, I get to the end of August, I'm like, you know, I haven't turned over a buck that I really want. Well, so then I'm still, I'm still, I'm, now I got a weapon in my hand, but I'm still in scouting mode. And so I'm not necessarily just sitting on the knob all day, okay? I'm, I, I'm moving around a lot, you know, I'll, I'll, I make sure that I am in deer country that's glassable at first light. I'm not talking sunrise. That was a mistake I made as a younger man. I thought sunrise was early. Sunrise is late. You know, it's 40 minutes before daylight that you're, that, that you really need to start your hunting day. And I'm not talking about walking up the trail. You know, that has to all be done in the dark. I'm talking about in deer country where I can, buck country where I can, I can see, have a chance to see bucks. And that first 40 minutes, I'll actually be moving quite a bit, Brian. If I don't like to sit to glass very long at that time, unless I just have a wide open vista and I'm sitting with the 15s or the, or the, or the BTX 32s, you know, and I can really look at a lot of country. Some days I'll do that. But like where I, where I came from the other day, you know, I was, ba I was back in on horses quite a few miles, left the horses at, I got up at 3:45. Was out of camp by five. On, uh, I left the, the pack horses at camp. Took a uh, um, saddle horse just to the bottom of the ridge where I could tie him in the timber. No, no bucks could hear him whinny. I, and I, I crested that ridge at first light, just barely starting to see. And man, by the time eight o'clock rolled around, so basically an hour and 40 minutes later, dude, I was two miles from that horse. And, you know, I, I was glassing that whole time, moving glass and moving glass and moving glass and because I really don't know where the deer are. And, and you know what? I actually saw bucks, but and, and, and I took some quick video of them. One of them was about a 24, 25 inch buck, you know, and I used to, I used to just sit there and watch them forever, you know, and, and, but I've kind of learned that, man, and as long as I have a good angle and I can see kind of where they're feeding, you know, and they're not down in a bunch of rough little cuts because you can miss deer too. Probably in 10 or 20 minutes, I can see everything that's there, you know, if they're up and feeding and stuff. And, and then I'm up and moving again. And, and I think I used, to, I used to miss opportunity by, by camping on the same bucks too long. And, 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 and again, that's in scouting mode when I'm still, I'm still looking for the golden ticket, you know, the best buck on the, on the mountain. And so by eight o'clock, you know, it's starting to get hot and, and, and everything. And the bucks are even kind of getting over into the shadows and everything. I want to have looked at as many bucks as I can. And, and that's a little different than what I used to do, Brian. You know, I used to just sit that whole time. And, and again, if I have a wide open vista, that can be worth it. But if I, especially if I'm in new country and I'm scouting and I don't really know where, where the best places to glass from or where the bucks are going to show up, you know, I'm, I'm kind of more moving at that time. But then as, as, as I find the buck, let's just say I find one. You, then, like I said, yeah, I'm using the master vantage points. You know, I'm, I, I'm staying back and, and I'm kind of doing that all through the archery season when they're when they're when they're still in their you know high visibility modes you know you're gonna you, you could see them at all hours of the day but as we move into early october you know and i'm talking kind of the if you get into colorado gosh sometimes by early call early october you know the, the 12 and thirteen thousand bucks have moved anyways so you know that that could be earlier but you know most of the west isn't that high and bucks i'm finding in september at ten thousand feet are usually still there until early october and, and, and so as we move into those rifle seasons, 
I may use those master vantage points a little bit, but as I, as I said in my speech at, at, at Lampers uh, Hunting Summit, I've only ever sat on a knob all day one time in my whole life. I mean, I'm just not built for it. But I've also learned I don't really need to because, you know, if I've scouted my country and I know my country, you know, I, I kind of know where these deer should be showing up. And, you know, burning all my skin off under the hot sun for 12 hours isn't going to make them come out of the timber any faster. And so as we move into those rifle seasons, a lot of times I'm on my feet a lot, you know, and that's people are always surprised when they find out I only use seven and eight power neck binoculars. Well, that's why it's because I'm on my feet a lot and I'm moving through cover and trying to find, you know, maybe maybe places that are a little harder to hunt that, that these bucks will get into and these bigger bucks will feel more secure because they can't just be glassed from, you know, the 10,000 feet, uh, foot peak that's up above. You know, they've, I hear you say it all the time, secondary living. And, and, and I know what you mean by that. That's where they go because that's where they can get old. But I find they go there because it's hard to hunt. So the advantage with a rifle is I can be on my feet it's not quite still hunting. I think of still hunting as I know that buck's in that patch of timber down there. I don't know where, but I'm going to pussyfoot through there and I'm going to kill him. I think of it more as just kind of moving through deer country and, and try, trying to catch him off guard. And that's where a rifleman has a real advantage, where a bow hunter doesn't. I think one of the hardest things bow hunting is, is hunting big mule deer with a bow while still hunting. You know, you don't know really, really where they're bedded you know, that's tough. That's tough. But with a rifle, you know, if they get up, I have a chance, you know, where with a bow, oh gosh, by the time, by the time I get, you know, drawn and, you know, get to my anchor point and, you know, level my bubble, you know, all that crap that we do now, probably why I should be a trad <laughs> archer. Um, oh, I'm not going to get a shot. You know what I mean? But with a rifle, man, I'm not afraid to be in there. And, 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 you know, I've killed a couple of bucks that way, not a ton, but I have killed a couple that I know there's no other way I, I could have killed them. I could have set up on the, on, the, on, the, on the peak, the master vantage point, whatever you want to call it. I could have sat there for a month. I still probably would have never seen that buck. God, that makes good sense. Um, yeah, it, it, you're right. Like that master vantage point, uh, it, it's great and it's productive. But you're right in that being a mule deer hunter and really good at glassing country, like, you know, within 20, 30 minutes, what's there. And there's always an exception. Maybe one walks through the trees or, or walks down. And, mm -hmm. and sometimes I like to sit on that master vantage and I won't move there. Like, uh, the spot I hunt in Colorado that I'm going back this year, I actually tried to hunt it from the ridge and I could only see little pieces and parts of country. And, and so I couldn't get stocks on bucks. So what I ended up doing is going all the way down and off the mountain where then I was looking at the whole thing and it laid out to me. And I could keep tabs on those bucks and keep tabs on where they were going uh, and what they were doing and where they were going to bed and then make my plays from there. And so those master vantage points are always different, whether it's a high ridge, uh, whether it's walking down a secondary ridge and losing a thousand feet of elevation to kind of open up the hillside a little bit more. Um, you, you know, looking for those master vantage points. But then I like what you said about, like, keep moving. Like, you, you, you know within 20, 30 minutes what's living in there. And, and, and it's not still hunting like you stated. It, it's almost like just a, a slow method of hunting through deer country. And so, like, I'm walking mm -hmm. through there almost with OCD, like, pulling up my binos on every little opening, every little piece. And if I find... 
that that the country opens up to me a bit, I might sit down there and I may spend five, ten minutes, maybe twenty minutes, and then I'm going to keep moving and using mm-hmm. those morning hours. And you also stated something that's really important: is being to the right places at the right time. Uh, you know, as it gets into those later seasons or even the early season for that matter, like your window to catch those bucks out in an opening it is uh, uh, is maybe 20 minutes. It could be five minutes from when the lights come on. They do not like that sunshine mm-hmm. and especially as they get their gray coats on. They're just running for the shade mm-hmm. and for that timber. And, and so especially as it gets into those later seasons or uh, that staging ground for the rut, like they tighten up their programs. They barely show themselves. And if you're up there hiking the trail at first light or up there at sunrise, uh, that basin could be full of bucks and you just don't know it because you weren't there at the right time. And so it's really important, like all that stuff you stated, like you're just um, – uh, uh, you're you're uh, such a, a die-hard muley guy that everything you say really resonates with me. Like, uh, I completely agree with everything you say and your tactics that you use. Like, you're just absolutely spot on for locating those bucks. And so, it it is like a a combination of using the master vantage points and, and then also using this mobile vantage point where you're moving and glassing and moving and looking and you don't want to move too quick because you can definitely blow out bucks that you never get a chance at. Um, but you also don't want to move so slow, like still hunting where, you know, you never get anywhere, cover any country. You were saying, you know, the other day you were two miles away from your horses. That's covering ground in the, in the morning light, you know? And, um, and, and I love uh, your scouting tactics as well, like uh, 15 days in country already looking for the one. And and that's what I like to do, too, yep. in the, that scouting time or the early season. I like to cover ground. And and, and even when I find a, a, a big buck, uh, you know, I'll, I'll probably keep moving on to go find no, another one. I'm not going to sit there and just watch him forever unless, you know, he's the absolute one that I want to kill. I'm going to put all my eggs into that basket. But for the most part... You know, if I find a good 180-inch deer, you know, I take tabs of where he's at and where he's living and his home range right there, but then I'm going to keep moving and see what else I can find, see if I can come up with a backup plan or come up with one bigger. Uh, But you're just so spot on, Robbie. It's so fun to talk to you because uh, all the things you say just absolutely resonate with mule deer hunting. And so uh, you're scouting thus far. You said you have 45 bucks located so far? 43 is, is, was my run in total as of Sunday when I got home. 43. Um, man, that leg work and like, um, and you're scouting, like e-scouting is important, but boots to ground and walking through country, finding vantage points, finding camping locations, uh, finding ridge lines, finding where the deer like, like, you know, finding deer is a moving target. Like bucks like to be where bucks like to be. Sometimes you look at five drainages that all look the same, but there's only bucks in one of them, you know? And so you got to get that boots to the ground and you do a really good job of that. Well, thank you. And I think some of this stuff is resonating with you just because you've hunted mule deer a lot, but I want to be kind of clear to your listeners as, as we break that down, that as you hear Brian and I talk and remember Brian's purely bow hunting and, 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 and I'm talking a a kind of a multi-weapon and I, I wouldn't, so I wanted to clarify that I'm not typically still hunting with my bow, not unless I have that buck went in that patch right there. I know he's not coming out. And I got no other way to kill him, and it closes tomorrow. Okay, I'll still hunt then. 
where 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 with, with you know way Brian to do it, he'd stay back on that master vantage point. Boom, that buck's bedded. I'm going after him, even if it took one, two, three days to get him bedded. And I would do the same thing then. But as you know, I just want to make sure guys are understanding as as we get closer and closer into you know the always secondary living. You know they're not coming back out. They're hard horned. It's rifle season. Oh man, that's when I'm I'm in the I'm in the cover. I mean, I may start on the on the on on the glassing in the morning. I'm in fact I almost always do, but I just don't spend a lot of time doing it because now I got a rifle in my hands. You know, so I just just want to make sure that you know listeners are understanding that. And and Brian, don't you think that's kind of like high level deer hunting when you know when to switch tactics? Where like when I was younger, that was kind of my problem. I mean, I was almost too patient. Oh, I'm gonna sit here forever. You know, or I'm only going to do this one thing, whereas I've gotten a little better at it. I'm like, no, that's not going to work. You can actually be too patient. You can try something too long where, where as I've gotten better at it and, you know, I've been less time between fill and tags. It's just been knowing when to, when to switch tactics and, and switch methods and try something else or, you know, get out of here. Let's get out of here. Let's go somewhere else where, you know, the younger me, it was like, let's get out of here and go have a hamburger. Well, then I'd never make it back to the mountain. Where now it's like, let's get out of here and let's go over here and try this spot. You know, I, I know, I know that if, if this buck was here, we, we should have been seeing him. You know, we, we should have been seeing him. It's not going to do me any good just to sit here for a month looking for this buck. You know, but if I pack out of here and I come back up this other drainage, I know another pocket where maybe even that buck has moved to or there's other bucks. You know what I mean, Brian? <laughs> Do I ever that, uh, you know, our, our greatest ability as, as being human hunters is our ability to, to think and to theorize and, and to keep progressing like uh, it is. And it, it's almost it, it, it comes with uh, time and experience and that that builds our instincts and then our instincts tell us what to do or when to change or when to move, you know, and it it's believing in your choices and not. You know, you can't get stuck in the grass is always greener on the other side, uh, but but you also can't get stuck trying to find a buck that isn't there, you know? And so, nope. like, after you start breaking down country and you start hunting your way right. through it, your instincts start to tell you when it's time to move locations, when it's time to keep traveling and move your camp, or when it's time mm-hmm. to hold still and stay put and give it that three days to turn up that buck. Like you said, once you locate yep. a deer and you have his home range, like you're going to focus on that area because you know that deer lives in there. And, and so, yeah, I think, um, you know, this this experience, it really ha- helps shape our instincts in, in these moves we make. And, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Like that is high-level deer hunting. When you can theorize and come up with your next game plan and, 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 and keep moving or stay put or just let your instincts kind of guide you on that hunt but believing in it, not second-guessing it or being wishy-washy, making a decision and going with it, you know. I think that's really important. Yeah, because if you're not confident in what you're doing, you kind of start hunting sloppy. And and I'm not saying I never hunt sloppy. I mean, I get tired, I get lazy, you know, especially towards the end of the season. And and, and that's why I believe in this stuff because that's when I make all my mistakes. But if 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 you're confident in what you're doing and you've decided, you know what, like like I'll give your listeners like an idea of when I'll when I'll when I'll stick it out. I found a great buck a couple of years ago, uh, Jordan, um, and I uh, did a film on it. And it's called hunting big mule deer. It's a high country mule deer hunt. Found a great buck, you know, kind of in that 195 to 205 class, right around in there. And um, I ended up staying basically on that ridge line where that buck was, which is you know maybe two miles long and you know maybe a mile and a half wide. 
I ended up staying there for 17 days total between archery and rifle. The reason I never moved on that buck or never moved out of that area or hunted anywhere else was because the hunting pressure was not that bad. I mean, it was, it was kind of busy on the opener. Um, didn't see anybody during archery. Um, and all the bucks that were with this buck just kept showing up. And I wasn't seeing them every day. I mean, it was a thick, timbered place. You know, people can go watch the film. You know, it, was, it wasn't easy to hunt, but I stuck it out because there wasn't a lot of hunting pressure. It was not an easy place to see deer. So I never could convince myself that, hey, I've really given this a good look. And um, so I ended up sticking that one out and I didn't get the buck. I mean, it, it just happens. I'm still very confident he was right there somewhere. But then there's other places where like, you know, hey, I got a buck scouted, man. This is going to be flipping awesome. And God, I come rolling in and man, there's nobody camping down here because I never camp in the buck country. I always camp below it. Well, then I start scouting around, you know, night before season, season. Oh, crap, there's a tent over there. And oh, crap, that guy's riding his horse right through the place where the buck was. And, you know, and then that just continues, you know. By day three, there's still people all over the place. I'll give up on that buck. I really will because I know he's probably not going to put up with that stuff either. And then I'm moving down my hit list. You know, I'll move to another buck or something. Or, or sometimes if it's a long season, just depends on where you're at. You know, in Idaho and Wyoming, sometimes we're pretty spoiled. You know, and we can come back a couple weeks later when the, when the pressure comes down. And you know, maybe maybe I'll come back and check on him then. But but you know, if it's if it's like, hey, there's no reason for this buck really to be gone then I'm going to stick it out. And I, I learned something a long time ago from, from some good deer, old deer hunters. And, and they all said the same thing that, you know, really where is a buck going to go and not get hunted in most places, unless it's just a low number of tags or something. I mean, really, where are they going to go to avoid the pressure? Are they going to move to some spot five or 10 miles away? Probably not. They're going to, they're going to hunker down you know, they may have to move a mile or so to, you know, to get into rougher country or, you know, between trails. I don't know, but, but it just kind of stuck with me that it's not going to do me any good to be running to and fro because these bigger bucks probably aren't either. Again, unless there's just a ton of pressure, then I do need to get out of there. But those places that have a ton of pressure, a lot of times I'm not hunting them anymore because they don't have any big bucks in them anyways. Mm -hmm. Well, and they, they just, like you stated, like they just tighten up their program. They don't slip up as much, but yeah, they don't go 10 miles away. They, they, they just move into more cover and they're more secluded. Like I hunted this rifle tag with my dad uh, and it was in Wyoming. It's a place I love to hunt with my bow and arrow. And so, you know, I convinced my dad to apply for this tag and he saved up points. And then we went and hunted this place and, you know, even hunting there, uh, it, these backcountry basins, I knew there was bucks living in there because I had hunted it the bow season and I knew there's good numbers of bucks, but it's wild how they feel that pressure. And, and these bucks feel that pressure. And I tell you, like, it's, um, just like an older age class buck is a different deer to hunt. High pressure deer are different deer to hunt. Like, like they just know that mm -hmm. hunting season is there. And I, I've even seen it in high pressure archery zones, like, uh, the Wasatch that gets a lot of bow hunters. Like those bucks know it's archery season and there's guys after them and they tighten up their program and drop to secondary living in August. They stop with that Alpen lax attitude. They know they're being hunted. And same thing as that rifle pressure starts to happen in Wyoming. They start to tighten up their program and we found 
these group of bucks and these group of bucks were working. And I mean, I saw, you know, guys to my right and they're working kind of the, the more open, uh, alpine basin drainages and they're kind of looking there. And now these deer where I'd see them normally in bow season in the open and, and in these spots, these deer have all moved into that secondary living and they've just tightened up their program. And so we actually ended up finding a group of bucks that were living in like dang near in this rock slide timber. Like they just use more cover mm-hmm. to their advantage. They don't mm-hmm. show themselves as much. Uh, they get more nocturnal. And so like there's still bucks around. And I, I think it's using all the available information. Like you stated, if you see a bunch of camps or a horse guy riding through the basin where he lived or, you know, you can kind of add all that up. But you know, if you if you believe those deer are in there and you believe it's their home range, you know, you pay attention to the tracks. You you, you pay attention to, oh, yeah. to like the little slides and little openings in the edges of meadows, you know, no, not so much the grand big open drainages. And, and you have to really pick it apart, too. You have to glass in those trees and in that timber and trying to find a deer body in there. But, you know, we actually found these bucks that were working this rock slide and took us a couple days, but we got a really good buck killed in there. And we saw hunters every day, you know, that rifle season, you know, there's guys getting after it and they're hiking good miles. But we just found like a niche where I knew these bucks were living. They had tightened up. They were living in more cover and we were able to figure out their pattern and then kill a really nice buck in there so you're right it's just using like all that available information and kind of those instincts dictate whether you think you should move or stay put and um you're right in the the younger years you come off the mountain and you have a cheeseburger and all of a sudden you don't feel like going back in but but now (laughs) you know you get so set in 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 our you know in in the purpose and the goals and you know you know we've had it pay off for us enough to where we know if we keep putting effort in we're probably going to create an opportunity so, you know, it's back out and then it's back in another trailhead in the next spot. And I also like what you said that you'll revisit that drainage later in the year. Like you knew a big buck was living in there. So you might let that pressure wane and then go back in there and go check and see if you can turn them up. I think that's really smart as well. Yeah, Brian. In fact, that buck that I talked about that I hunted 17 days, I was there till the second to the last day of the season. You know, when it, it, I went uh, archery, I went opener of rifle, I went mid-season rifle, and then I went the last couple days. You know, and this was a, you know, two and a half hour horseback ride in there. It wasn't just, you know, run up and check on the buck and, and you know, plus like 150 miles from my house. You know, I put my whole season into that. There's another example of why I just hunt mule deer because I don't want to get distracted thinking, man, I got this great elk tag. I need to be given that justice. I used to do all that stuff and I ended up not doing well on any of it but that buck you know I was I was, I was very satisfied by the end of that season because I had hunted at those four different hunts from archery clear into snowfall and um, may have even seen his tracks I have I had a little video on it on my blog of you know a pretty good blocky two 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 and a half inch wide track by three and a quarter three and a half inch long track and you know they're you don't know all the bucks that are obviously and there was a couple you know nice 24 25 21 70 type bucks running around could have been one of those although those didn't seem to have that type of body and um, i did find that track in there at the end of the season but the snow was real crunchy and then he got into some rocks where there was no more snow and i never could just pick up the track again but what i'm saying is when i left that mountain even though it took me eight preference points to draw that place as an on-resident i was satisfied 
because I had I had I had given it everything I had. There was nothing on the table compared to like 20 years ago when I'd be like, oh, I should have tried this, or oh, I should have went back, or oh crap, I you know I was off chasing elk when I should have been doing this. And I love elk. I mean, that's why I used to get so distracted doing it. Where where when I left that mountain, it was like it's okay. I did everything that I know how to do. But when you were talking about your dad's hunt and you were talking about all those other guys out in the open, and you know you guys just didn't didn't just roll in their opening morning and you know tip over a big buck. You had to use your brain and you had to you had to think through it and you had to look at the country and what are the hunters doing and I've hunted here before bow hunting and you know what have the bucks been doing then you had to add all that up together and then you know I don't know what kind of buck your dad got but when I do all that kind of stuff and 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 I put my tag on a buck I'll I'm more satisfied with a buck that's that, that's 20 inches less that I had to use my brain to figure out how to kill than one that's 20 inches bigger that I just rolled in on opening morning and tipped him over because he was out on the open ridge before the hunters pushed him off. You know what I mean? Just kind of thinking it through. That's what's really satisfying to me because then I know what my, I'm doing what my dad taught me when I was young. You're doing it on purpose. Oh, you're playing the chess game. That That's the fun of it. Yeah, and, and um, you know, that, that same theory applies. Like, I've got a really good spot in the Wasatch where I killed a really good buck in there. But, you know, the experience wasn't the one I wanted. Like, uh, there was just a lot of bow hunters in that country. The bucks really tightened up their program, and I enjoyed hunting them. But, but in that same breath, like, I like getting to that country where nobody's at. Like, that's a fun experience for me. And so, for me, I love to hunt mule deer, but I'll hunt one 20 inches smaller and have a better experience than I will 20 inches bigger. And I just don't... I'm not interested in doing the combat bow hunting. That's just not for me. Like I want to go find my own niche in no. the country. I I want to no. go find my own bucks and and go have my own experience. That's really important to me is to enjoy the entire process, you know. Um, but man, that that is fun. Like um, playing that chess game with those bucks and those big bucks. They're like a different species. They really do get crafty and uh, uh, really do get keen instincts. And um, man, it's a, you know, I almost give them more credit than I think. uh, Well, you know, I don't, but you you almost think that they're out thinking you the whole time, you know, when you're trying to hunt a big one like that. But um, you brought up a good point Mm -hmm. using tracks. And I think um, Mm -hmm. you, you have really keyed into this tracking bucks and paying attention to the size of the track. And you can actually tell like how mature a deer is by the size of the track you mentioned three and a half inches that's that's my guideline for a big buck you know is what i try to look for is three and a half inches or bigger um so paying attention to these tracks as you're walking around country you know it really tells you a lot and of course like as it snows you can use tracks more but like where i've been using them a lot is is i love hunting mule deer and I love hunting them in all different habitats, and I really think that sharpens my skills. Hunting them from the the high country, hunting them in the the, the badlands, oh, yeah. hunting them in the uh, the foothills. Uh, the desert now is the last landscape that I have left, and I hunt a lot of desert country. But as I start to go to Arizona, like these populations in these densities get so low. But they can grow some of these giant Sonoran dark horn desert mule deer. But it's weird. Like they live in the flats and they live in the flats because mm-hmm. it's 
it's it's all cover down there. It's really tough to hunt. And so you'll find these master vantage points mm-hmm. that'll show off these flats. But the moment you dive down into them, you know, you kind of lose your bearings or where that buck was. So it's really difficult to hunt in there. But I, I started working these vantage points and I just wasn't turning up deer. And I started to key more into these tracks. So what I started to do is as I was cruising through this desert landscape, that's this vast desert landscape, like any wash I come across, I'd park my truck and I'd walk up that wash and I'd look for tracks. And, and any water hole that I came across, I'd walk around it and mm-hmm. I'd look for tracks. And all of a sudden I could start to find these deer populations and then find a vantage point that would show off this country and wouldn't you know it, I find a great big Sonoran desert mule deer, you know, like uh but really for me, honing that that skill of tracking, it's something that that I haven't been paying enough attention to over the years. But I think you have. You pay a lot of attention to tracks when you're hunting, don't you? Oh, big time, dude. It's it's my number probably two or three tactic. You know, glassing is always going to be your number one tactic. But tracks, you know, when, when I, I I don't know if you got to my chapter on tracking in my book yet, but I'm not so sure I did a great job on that chat on that chapter because as I've talked to guys that have read the book, they're kind of more like, hey, you do you know, looking for bucks to follow and you know having a hard time keeping up with them and da da da. And as I've talked to them, I thought, you know what, I, I, I next time I write a book, I'm going to expand on that a little bit. Tracking is not just picking up a track and following the buck until you find him and shoot him. Okay, now that's the gold standard. That's the golden ticket. That's the Willy Wonka chocolate factory ticket right there. But that's not going to happen a whole lot of times in your life. There's just very, especially in a rough country, it's so stinking hard to keep up with them. But with what you just said about like you use tracks in the area to narrow down where the deer are. And I think one of the things that's, that's hard about hunting the West, especially for somebody that hasn't been here, is there's not deer everywhere. There can be massive amounts of country that sh- that's deer habitat that doesn't have deer in it. And so, or has very few deer in it. And so what your job is, is to narrow down where to spend your limited amount of hunting effort. And I don't care if you hunt 30 or 40 days a year, you know, like I do, and some guys hunt more than that, and you still, you still, you're still limited. You're limited on energy, you're limited on season days and stuff, and so you got to be hunting where the deer are and where the bucks are, and it doesn't matter if you're the best still hunter in the world, or the best tracker in the world, or the best glasser. If you're not where there are any deer, newsflash, you ain't going to get one, and you know, some kid, you know, riding his XR250 down the road up, you know, up at the canyon, he's going to embarrass you because he's going to shoot a 30-incher, you know, and and so by tracking, it's helped me nowhere to focus my hunting days so yeah i've paid attention to it for decades i wouldn't call myself a great tracker but i'm i like the way tom brown jr puts it you know he's one of the best trackers in the country trained by an an apache indian chief and um, he's still alive too he still writes books on it there's a lot of hocus pocus in his books but his tracking stuff is spot on and he says he says this tracking is just awareness and so think about it that's really what you did on that sonoran desert brian you were aware you were aware of the tracks. You put effort into finding them, and and then it helps you narrow down where to spend your limited hunting days. I'm just using your example right here because it's playing right into what I wanted to say. Is then you knew which vantage points to work for and to 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 spend your time on. Because you know, let's face it, you might only have a two three hour window a day that those bucks are going to be up and moving. You got to be in the right spot and tracking tracks is what tipped you off to that so you know i just want the listeners to understand that tracking is not just picking up a track and following it to the end but it's being aware of how the deer are using the country and where they're using it the other thing tracks have showed me brian is where deer never go 
I mean, I, there's places that, man, there should be deer here. I mean, I've been glassing. I've been hiking these ridges. I've, I've went down these little finger ridges. There are no deer tracks here. That's a big tip right there. I'm not going to spend any time in that place, you know. Um, and that can be condition specific. You know, maybe the next week there are deer there. But, but to just walk through the forest and not look down, I just think we're, we're, we're wasting time. And I think tracking out of all the deer hunting skills, you know, ambush hunting, still hunting, moving through deer country, you know, glassing, um, you know, all those, all those different things. I think tracking is the one that's kind of dying out. And, and, and yet it's still very, very effective. As long as you can wrap your mind around the fact of you're using tracks to narrow down where to hunt. Yeah, if you pick up a smoking hot track and in good conditions especially with a rifle oh yeah get on that thing man i do that but i find i only get that opportunity about once a year you know you gotta have the right snow conditions it's gotta be where you can track them you know all that kind of stuff but just knowing that hey there's deer in this drainage there's not deer in this drainage hey deer are using this saddle hey deer are not using this wash you know whatever oh man that makes me super efficient on knowing where to hunt oh that's um that's so well described. That's exactly it. Uh, I, I uh, had that happen in Nevada. Like it's probably been 15 years ago where I was hiking the drainage, you know, back often to my camp that I wasn't even looking at or hunting. And I picked up a big track there. And so I found a vantage point that showed off that country. And pretty soon I found a big buck. I didn't kill him, but I got some stalks on him in there. I think I got two chances at him. And I would have never found that buck if I didn't see that track in that trail. Man, that is so spot on. And another thing, too, is those fresh snows. You can glass that snow for tracks. That'll tell you where deer are at and where deer are working. And you can actually see where they're feeding or where they're putting away into timber. And especially as that that sunshine gets onto that snow, it'll show off those tracks. And I I remember you know watching yours the uh, your your speech at the Western Hunting Summit and that great big buck that you killed on that late season hunt. Uh, you were glassing tracks a lot in that in that film or some of the the footage mm-hmm. and pictures mm-hmm. that yep. you were showing us. Yep, that's exactly right, dude. That was a migration hunt. And again, you know, that, that all signs sounds awesome. Like, hey, I got a rut tag and the deer are migrating. Well, that's all sounds great till you get up there and realize, my goodness, there's 15 square miles of country here and they don't they don't use it evenly. And so the only way for me to really narrow that down was to, to, to start covering country and, and looking where most of the tracks were. There were a few tracks everywhere, but you know, you remember that picture I put up on that slide at the summit. I mean, that looked like a herd of sheep went through there. And, 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 and so I thought, you know what, these deer, they're not here right now, obviously they've moved through here, but I'm either going to get another push of deer through here or the migration, or I need to stay on these tracks and hunt down country from there. And, and that's actually what I ended up doing. And then I ended up killing that 187 buck, um, uh, just based on, on those being aware of those tracks. I didn't track his individual track, but he was staying in that kind of one mile, not even, it wasn't even a mile wide, Brian, it was more like a half a mile wide swath of country that went through that all those square miles that were probably 80 90 percent of the deer were and it was the tracks that tipped me off on it hey dude back on your nevada buck that you were talking about a second ago you found that track and then you backed off and you started watching that area and sure enough you saw a mature buck a big buck and you got a couple of stalks in on him you probably would have never even hunted right there or glassed right there had you not seen that track is that correct that's exactly right i wasn't glassing that feature at all until i saw that track do you think that was the buck that left that track i 
I do. There was a handful of them in there. After I started glassing it, there was actually like three or four bucks that were hanging in there, but there was one great big mature one, and yeah, I'm almost positive that was his track. I mean, it was it it was dang near, you know, it was all a three and a half, three yeah, and three man. quarters, great big mature one. Yeah, I think that was his track. See, man, you're getting me fired up. That is the kind of stuff right there when I'm talking about high-level deer hunting that just... I, dude, I'm ready to go tomorrow, man, if there's an open season. I want to get out there and I want to look at the ground and I want to see those tracks and I want to go, you know what? Uh, I, I, those guys are hunting over there and there's a tent right there and a bunch of people are up there, but there's a big track here with even with all these people around and all I got to do is be right here. And if I just get back like you did, and, and, and even if you don't get them, it's still so satisfying to know, you know, you weren't just out randomly looking around i mean you're you, you found you found the buck and, and i'm with you it probably was him because there's not that many big bucks walking around leaving three and a half inch by two and three quarter inch wide tracks um, but even if it wasn't him those big tracks will still cue you off that there's a there's a big buck around here and 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 i found this brand and i'm kind of asking you a question here i found if there's a big buck around that country attracts him for whatever reason cover feed you know topography you know good bedding whatever and therefore it's probably going to attract other big bucks so even if i don't find the one that left that big old smoking track because i get guys that say that well you may even probably never see that deer again oh that's okay he still showed me the living room of where big bucks like to go has that been your experience oh, big bucks like to be around other big bucks you know it's it's crazy yeah they they find the right type of habitat uh the lack of pressure whatever it is they find there they like it in there and so yeah a lot of times you'll find a giant buck and there'll be two giant bucks running in there or maybe even three or four like uh i'm getting ready to hunt actually in in five days i leave for mm -hmm. a high country hunt that i'm so ecstatic about i haven't been to this mountain range oh, you dog. since 2015 and it's this <laughs> this beautiful mountain range but i found this niche in this mountain range and and, and my niche is like getting off the main ridge and dropping down about a thousand feet and into these aspens and into this cover uh, where these bucks like. And, you know, this range can be tough to find mature mule deer, uh, but but I found this location and it's it's a long ways away from water. There's 12 miles of this ridge line that doesn't have any water. Uh, but I found a little spring that sits about, you know, 1,000, 1,500 feet down that just barely wow. bubbles out of the earth. And so, like, all of a sudden, there's no hunting pressure. People get there with a Nalgene bottle full of 32 ounces of water and have to turn around and go back. So so they can't live up there and survive. But I found, I, I found this little niche in this country, and I haven't been back there since 2015. I'm super excited. But in that country... I'm finding bucks that are breaking the rules. Like uh, I'm finding those older age class bucks and it's not just one of them. There's a bunch of them that hang in there. And so I don't have to find the one deer that made that track, like just hunting in the area where big bucks are all of a sudden, like, I mean, there, there can be a handful of big bucks in there and maybe not in the same drainage or work in the same ridgeline, but in that general area, they like it in there. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm going right back in there. It took me a long time to discover this place. And, and now that I know where it's at and how to hunt it, I am so excited. Well, that, that's really smart, dude. And that's, you know, that's a, a takeaway your listeners should, should take from this podcast is, and, and that's why you'll get better at deer hunting the older you get, because, you know, if you learn and, and, and you write things down and you think things through, 
pretty soon you'll have like 10 different spots uh, where you'll be like, you know, in two, like you just said, in 2015, I haven't been back there, but you know, I know where the spring is. I've seen good deer in there. You know, I know how they use the country. Man, the high odds are that that, unless they just build a road in there and log that hillside, th- th- those bucks are probably still gonna be there. But even if they're not, you'll have another spot and another spot. And so sometimes when I'm talking to younger hunters, they're like, man, you're getting into all these big bucks. And, you know, I hunted 30 days this year too. And, you know, I, I, I never got one. I'm like, yeah, but just think of just what, what did you learn on that 30 days that a year or two from now, you're going to be able to, you know, compound that with another area. Cause you're going to get skunked a lot. You know, you're going to, man, I eat the majority of my tags. Just like I said, at Western hunting summit, man, I, I, I can't even count the number that I've eaten, but you start stacking these areas together that you've hunted year after year after year. And, you know, you may, you may be hunting in a 300 mile circle in two or three different States, but pretty soon you won't be hunting randomly. Like, like Brian Barney's going to the exact spot that he knows hasn't been there in six years, but dude, my money's on you. Maybe you won't get one, but I know your odds are, are really good because you're not going to be wasting any days in unproductive country. You already know that 12 miles of ridgeline, you know, 87% of it doesn't have any bucks in it, but you know the 10, 15% that does. And man, that's, that's really all I'm doing is, as I've gotten older is just kind of kind of focusing and narrowing it down, narrowing it down. Where when I was younger, I should, honestly, I think when I was younger, I hunted harder than I do, but I didn't hunt efficiently. I was all over the place. You know, and, and, and I think back and I wasn't spending a, a good amount of time where I had a good chance. And I'm not talking a draw tag with bucks running everywhere. No, I'm talking about what Brian Barney just said. I just narrowed down 12 miles of ridge line that, you know, isn't even all that good to this one spot. And that, that people, that's your golden ticket right there. And the more of those places you can learn, the better. They're not going to produce every year. Yeah, don't get discouraged. That's where some guys get goofed up. They're like, well, you know, it was good back in 15. I went in 21 and it sucked. Well, that's okay. Get right back up there in 22. A few things could have changed. You just, you just never know. And, but, but when you start, it's kind of like my grandpa's old trap line, you know, he ran trap lines all over Southeast Idaho. And he's like, you know, five years ago, that place was good. Right now, it's good right here. I really don't know why. I'm never giving up on that other place. I'll check it too, but this is where I'm going to, you know, I got 60 traps I can put out. I'm going to put 50 of them right here. You know, it's kind of that same principle, you know, but, but then you got to be adaptable. And especially the game we're playing now, Brian, like you may not even have the tag. For, I mean, I don't know where it's at, but you may not have the tag for another five years. So you got to be able to move on and, and, and check other spots. And so I'm kind of going on and on. But, you know, and as I hear you say that stuff, I'm like, yeah, man, that's that's high level deer hunting right there. No, that gets me fired up. It is so fun to talk to you, Robbie. Like uh, you just got uh, such great insight into hunting. And yeah, as we get older, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, I love to hunt hard, but it's hunting smarter, you know, and the, the older I get, the, the smarter I want to be in these places. And it is, it's learning these mountain ranges, you know, the, the experience that we gain in these things and where we find bucks. And, and then it's also expanding your knowledge year to year. Just like you said, it may be different this year. I may have to adapt to the situation I'm given, adapt, evolve and overcome. Um, but, but I know there's going to be some bucks in here, but when I'm looking at country, I'm also thinking how I can expand my knowledge. I don't want to just hunt the the one drainage that I know or the the few spots that I know. I also I want to hunt those spots, but I also want to get to the next ridge and kind of see what's over there, or grab that next vantage point. Just keep expanding my knowledge base, which just um sets up for success in the future, but uh, you're dead on. Like um 
hunting these locations year after year the more times you can hunt them the more you learn the more effective and efficient you get and the more time you spend in bucky country because like you said they're not everywhere and so you can spend a lot of a hunt especially a new hunt like hunting country that isn't holding bucks or isn't holding the mature bucks you're looking for and so it's gathering that information and building this 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 database and 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 then keep expanding it and keep looking and yeah you're right like we we are going to fail a lot like uh failure is a prerequisite to bow hunting like it is going to happen you know but 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 it, it it's keep expanding that knowledge and learning these places and now when i go back to this range you know, I've hunted it three, four seasons. Like I, I, I have got like a, a good database of knowledge of this place and where these bucks like and where they're working, as well as I've got a few new spots that I want to check out. And I've got a backup plan in case they aren't there, a place I'll move my camp. And so, you know, I, I think it is a combination of both. And I love to explore, but there's nothing like going back to a spot that you know is going to be good. Oh yeah, your confidence is so much higher, and you know what? You're not making mistakes. You're not being sloppy. You know where you you know where you have to be quiet. You know where you have to sneak up to the ridge and peek over. You know, you, another thing too. You know where to be at what time. You know how long it takes to get to a place. You know, to 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 have a good chance of seeing bucks while they're on their feet. And and sometimes you know you can be in a, in a great place and even hunting right. You still don't know quite where to be at what time. You know, maybe you left left camp in the dark and, and you walked an hour, but you only needed to walk a half an hour to be in a really good spot and see, you know, onto the northwest slope of a certain canyon where the deer are right as the sun comes up and, you know, they move out into the shade, you know, and, and, and so, you know, just move, just knowing your areas. And that's what, what I was going to ask you too, Brian. I think I know the answer, but do you journal any of this stuff or do you just, do you just keep it in your head? Like, you know, you just, you just know, Hey, I haven't been there for five years, but I know exactly how to hunt it. How do you, how do you manage yeah, all that? I, I try to journal as much as I can. And I wasn't as good at it uh, when I was younger, but anymore hunting so many different places. Like I really try to journal the dates and the, the deer sightings and buck sightings and, uh, vantage points and, and just things to remember. And it's kind of, I don't know if anybody could make sense out of my chicken scratch, but it makes sense to my own brain. Cause I wrote it, you know, but yeah, I'll look back <laughs> on these notebooks this whole entire week. I'm looking back on my notebooks of hunting this place and it just refreshes my mind. Oh yeah, that I did turn up that, those bucks and that year they were really strong on that hillside or uh, the next time I hunted it, I didn't find them on that hillside so much. They were two drainages over on on this one, and I hunted that bowl. And oh, that's right, I crossed that big drainage for that giant buck over there. And uh, I've I've actually got a spot uh, hunting Colorado again this year. And you said uh, uh, giant bucks hang around other giant bucks, or so a lot of times a drainage where you find a giant buck, you can go back years later and there'll be another one in there. And there's a buck in this drainage and and I kick myself for not going for him he was a giant heavy buck but it was all cliffed out trying to get down trying to get over to him I couldn't find a good route to him and I think this year I have a route to him like I've studied my maps uh, I think I can get to him from the backside. it's going to take some effort but there was a great big buck living in there that I never went for never made a play on and so I'm going back to that spot and I know I can get in there and know I can kill a buck in there you know and so I'm excited to look in that spot but journaling is so important i also journal the wind every day how it moves through the mountains the thermals the directionals i'll mark on my notes like uh okay today was a south wind you know as far as um what they predicted or on my weather app
map and this is how the the wind was moving through this canyons and that it pays such dividends to be paying attention to those details uh because once you get to to day six and you get a chance at that buck and to make a play to have five previous days of notes on the winds and what they were doing all of a sudden I can make a real calculated play of what those winds are going to be doing and if I can get in on that buck and so yeah I think I think journaling is really important and the the more I do it the more I see the importance of it and and the the older I get the more notes I take do you do the same thing or does it come uh, does it come back to you as you hunt these places? Do you keep a detailed journal of where you're hunting? Both. And um, what I learned as I got older, and you were talking about it just a second ago, is like when you read your journal, you're like, oh, yeah, I forgot. I saw a buck over on that hillside. And, you know, and, and you, would t- you, know, you remember the hunt, but you don't remember all the little details. And so I, I journal a lot, and I have for about 25 years, but... When, when, when Rockslide first started, dude, and I was just writing all these articles and doing all these videos, I kind of started thinking, you know, what? I don't need to journal anymore because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm writing articles about my hunts. I'm going to remember it or I'm going to watch that video. But, dude, I found out it wasn't as good as a journal. So I'm starting to do it a lot more again because, you know, like, like you just said, and this other thing to people, if you're keeping a journal, don't just do all that and then put it in a drawer and forget about it. Do what Brian said. You get that journal out the week before the hunt for that area and you go back through and you read it and there's, there's going to be stuff you're going to totally forgot about. Like, oh yeah, there was a buck on that hillside or, oh yeah, I forgot there is water over there. I mean, we're, we're, you know, I love Onyx and you know, all the mapping stuff we got now. It's awesome, but it's still looking at your own words on paper and what you experienced and what you felt on that hunt that is golden information that you just you just can't remember it all that's why i figured you'd tell me that you did journal because if you hunt a lot you can't remember it all i mean you know grandpa goes to the same spot for 40 years okay he doesn't need to write anything down he he knows he knows the names of the trees you know, but man, we're, we're, we're multi-state hunters. We're jumping all over the place. We might be hunting a, a hundred miles from, from the last place that we hunted in two days, you know? So we, we, we got to have that, that database to roll back to. So to answer your question, Brian, I have a drawer full of journals and a lot of that stuff is, is how I wrote my book was going back and looking at those stories. It's amazing how many, even a, even a hunt that you just think about all the time, how many little things that, that you, that you forget about that were, you know, really important. Oh man, that's so spot on. Yeah. The details of it. And, uh, it, it's really fun to read back on too, because you, it, uh, you get these memories that almost have been lost or replaced or that you you don't quite remember. Just like you said, those details come back to you and, and you say, oh, yeah, I did see that that buck on that far hillside. And all of a sudden it's this vivid memory that, that you haven't been able to recall because you've been 25 different places since you've been there, you know. But once they start coming back to you, you, you start yep. remembering yep. all the, the places and, oh, yeah, out that ridge line, there was a good vantage point out there. That's right. That's why I have that circle in my journal five times as master vantage point like oh yeah I, I need to go out there and check out that spot I'd I'd forgotten that I found bucks over there I'd forgotten that I'd found bucks on the back side of that thing um, man you're spot on like looking back at that information it it's huge and it really jogs your memory and so yeah it's uh, the more I take the more I get out of it and so uh, the the more journaling I'm gonna do as the seasons go on I just have to 
to to write it down and then have a drawer full of it like you say and and go through it when I draw that tag again or get a chance to go hunt it but that experience is just the best teacher um just teaches you you know where these these animals like and where they don't and where they prefer and then you know furthering your knowledge into those spots but man that's that really is key is you know very rarely uh or, or I'll say you know, it, it's really tough to go into a new area or a new mountain range and be successful your first time in there. A lot of times you you walk away with a lot of knowledge and then the, the success comes after that. You know, it, it's building that database of information. Well, we should talk about that, too, because I know you and I talked about this privately up at, at, at Lamper Summit was that's part of the reason that we're not chasing all the big high profile tags. I mean, you know, you, maybe you do. I know I apply for them, but I don't build my hunt strategy around big tags you know i'm trying to get otc stuff at least two two otc tags a year you know maybe one in my home state one another state. and maybe it's not otc but i just mean something that's that's easier to get you know that i can get kind of more often and 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 yeah i'd much rather have something that takes 8 10 12 15 years to draw don't get me wrong you know i, I wish i had 10k to drop on landowner tags every year but kind of what i've learned about those big tags is that you know you you were talking a second ago brian about you know your first time into a hunt that you know sometimes that's not when you do the very best and you know you got to kind of come back and apply what you've learned and all that stuff well unless you can come back you know legally you're not going to get to do all that and i man i've hunted some good tags dude i had a tag on on uh, uh san juan elk ridge in, in utah and <laughs> some great bucks down there i can never go back and I have all this good information. I mean, I just about killed a, a 30 incher with a great big old sticker on him and um, uh, saw a couple other good bucks. I, I can, I can statistically, I can never go back in my life, you know, unless I can afford some $25,000 landowner tag. Um, um, and so I got all this knowledge, but nothing to apply it to. And so, you know, being able to hunt, and you and I were talking about this, there's still millions of acres of country that's open where you can still get tags. And, and I think guys kind of poo-poo some of that stuff a little bit, like, oh, it's just a general season Idaho tag, or, oh, you know, Montana, God, they hunt their bucks from the time their fawns are born until they die, which isn't true, you know, but, but it, they, they just don't really give it the effort that it deserves. And yet when I talk to somebody like you, you're like, Oh yeah, dude, I'm hunting the badlands in November. I'm hunting the high country early. I mean, you're, you're giving it all you got, but you're building your hunt portfolio in areas that you can continue to return to so that you can, you can, you can build on what you've learned. And so, you know, that's just something I want a lot of people to know that, yeah, I'm always looking for big tags, but odds are I'm going to be hunting someplace I've hunted before because I got to be able to, I got to be able to apply what I know and I got to, got to be able to get a tag again it does no good to be able to hunt an area once every 10 years you know what i mean <laughs> yeah uh, you're speaking my language that's exactly right it's it's not you know killing big bucks isn't about drawing a good tag it's about building the skill set to be able to kill these big bucks and and also building that skill set so when you do draw a good tag that you have the skill set to be able to go in there and find a big buck and kill him and if you're not building that uh, each and every year in multiple units or or if you're not hunting deer every single year and gaining that knowledge you're not going to be able to draw one of these good tags and go kill a monster uh, because it's about the skill set and, and and almost yeah. all the big bucks i've ever killed are zero to three point units like i that's what i draw that's what i hunt year after year 
Um, you know, if, if a, a tag starts getting up there at six, seven, eight points, like uh, I'm usually looking for a different area. And and I I do apply for some good tags, and I've been lucky. I, I have drawn a couple good tags, and I've taken some nice bucks out of there. But I tell you, they they really don't hunt that much different than than a low point unit you know it's it's like uh it, it's more about building the deer hunting skill set mm-hmm, right. than it is drawing this really good tag and i i think guys get hung up trying to draw the one percent of tags and it just doesn't happen i mean i'm never gonna draw a Ponsagon tag i'm never you know you know maybe someday or maybe you know i draw a desert strip tag or something like that maybe that tag will come but in the meantime i'm gonna build my hunting skill set to be the absolute best mule deer hunter i can be so when i do draw one of these tags i can set my sights high and go look for for one of these bucks that that is truly a once in a lifetime or special buck but yeah the majority of my hunting like like you said every year i'm hunting multiple over the counters uh you know if i was to look at it probably two a year and then a couple easy to draw tags i you know i I think uh, I got fortunate this year, and I'm sitting on some good mule deer tags, but uh, still nothing that took me over, you know, two points, three points to draw. Like, that's my wheelhouse. Zero to three points, man. You're so spot on. Uh, I should have you hosting this podcast, mm-hmm. Robbie. You're just uh, such great insight into mule deer hunting. That is super important for my audience to understand. Oh, man, no, you're 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 the host. And like I said, I, I kind of hit on that because you and I were talking about it at the summit, and I thought, man, I... I'm glad Brian thinks that way, and that's why he's got some big archery bucks, and 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 he's successful year after year, and and inspires a lot of people because you know you're not you're not just aiming for the high tags, and and what you said about um, if you do get one of those high big tags, it's your skill set that's that's going to matter. I mean, yeah, it helps to have a whole bunch of 200 inch bucks running around, but <laughs> I can show you my Instagram DMs, dude. I talk to a lot of guys every year that are come December they're licking their wounds you know they I mean guys with super tags guys with great tags in great areas are like I just don't even know what happened and I'm like dude it's because deer hunting's tough man big bucks are tough and and even in great areas you know you it happens to me man you know I've had I, I had a great tag a few years ago got spanked but it's just how it is but I'd still much rather rely on my skills going into a big tag than you know going into a big tag and like here's my once in a once in a lifetime hunt oh gosh dang that's a lot of pressure you know um but but if you're building your skill sets every year you're just you're just gonna have a better chance of doing it you know and some of these guys you know as i'm talking to them i can tell i don't want to call them not deer hunters i mean obviously they're deer hunting i don't mean that but it's like you know the guys you know he's 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 just never really focused on it and all of a sudden he's sitting on a giant tag that's a once in a lifetime tag and he just doesn't have a lot to fall back on, you know, and, and, you know, he's been hunting, you know, you know, smaller deer or all species and everything. He's, he's starting from scratch on a great tag and, and sometimes it ends well, but, um, more often than not, it doesn't though. You know, the only ones we ever hear about are the ones that make the cover of, 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 of the big mags, you know, Eastman's and, 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 and Ryan's hatches magazine and, you know, Epic outdoors and hunting fool, you know, we, we read those stories and like, Hey, this dude drew the tag. Yeah, he's got a 230. Yeah, but that's still, you're still talking down at the 1% or 2% level. You know, go further back in the magazines and look at those those smaller bucks that some of those guys are killing. But you read and you're like, this dude knows what he's doing. You know, if this dude gets a strip tag, my money's on him. 
You know what oh, I mean? Oh, yeah, it's spot on, man. That is exactly right. Yeah, it's building those skill sets. And even when I draw a good tag, they're always tougher than I can even imagine. Like, I try to prepare myself for the hardships or the hurdles or the challenges I'm going to face. And I get on a hunt, and it's like a fighter being punched in the face. Like, deer hunting is tough, you know, and, and, and you're going to have to overcome adversity. You're going to have to theorize and figure it out and even on these good tags that i've drawn uh you know that it's tough to kill a big deer you know it's uh like you said deer hunting is tough and these big older age class animals they learn how to how to avoid hunters year after year and it, it it's not by making a lot of mistakes you know it's it's by being crafty and being keen and in finding a location that's tough to hunt i find a lot of these big bucks they find locations that are just really tough to glass really tough to see or you know they they usually have like a common theme to them but these bucks they mm-hmm. find a niche and that niche is why they can grow old they've got a good early season spot they've got a good mid-season spot and then good rutting grounds and they figure it out but it it, it it's not the easiest spots to hunt these big bucks and sometimes you even find these bucks where it almost feels like a, like Mission Impossible to try to kill that buck because he's living in such a difficult spot. Out of your big bucks that you have killed, have you found that some of those older ones, they have a really good spot that they're living in? Good for the deer, not for the hunter. Yeah, dude, that, that buck that's in my opening chapter, the, the chapter that's called The One That Started It All, um, he um, lived in, uh, like there's country around where he lives that's probably about 9,000 feet. And it's typical, classic, alpine, rocky, nice-looking, good buck country. It's good, good country to archery hunt in still, even to this day. Um, you know, and maybe 40 years ago, it was even good for rifle because there wasn't people crawling all over it, you know, three days before the season, you know, building fires and sighting in their rifles like they are now. Um, but this buck was kind of more down in, you're reminding me of that spot you're talking about where you're going next week, that's down in the, the, the lower quakey country. You know, all this country's got water in it, so it's not really because of the water that he's there, but it's brushy, it's it's pretty dang steep, and it's there's just, there, there's one place you can glass that you could really sit and glass it, and you can even legitimately see deer, but, um, you know, he's on the only, I only saw him out there once or twice in two years. I hunted him for two years. The rest of the time, he was down on those finger ridges and those heavy quakies. You know, I, I think I hunted 40 days in that area over two years before I killed him. 35 days, some some enormous amount. I can't even remember. And really only saw him, what, saw him, saw him the first year? And I saw him the second year in August. And then I saw him when I killed him. I saw him three times in two years. And, and yet... You know, he wasn't running all over those mountains. He was just right there in those quakey basins. And But it was a good place for him to have all the feed that he needed. He could stay there from, from when he was in velvet, clear to when the rut came and the snow pushed him out. And the reason I know that is because I've been in that country since then and even into the uh, early November, and there's still does in there. And so, you know, he he... That's probably why he got big too. He wouldn't have to, you know, he could just sit around and get fat and eat. He didn't have to run all over the place. He didn't have to migrate early, you know, and, and, but he was tough to kill. And this, this spot gets a lot of hunting pressure, comparatively speaking. It's still five miles from the truck and everything, but, you know, a lot of elk hunters go there. It's a pretty good elk spot. Um, they're all packing deer tags. You know, bucks are getting shot all the time in there. Um, uh, you know, in fact, the day, day before I killed him, a guy killed a buck, not, oh gosh. 
700 yards from where I, where I ended up killing him. And, you know, they dragged him out of there, loaded him on horses and hauled him out, yet this buck was still in there the next day when I killed him. And, 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 and I think it's because there was just enough cover that, you know, and, and I got him aged too, by the way, lab aged, had his tooth sent in. University of Arizona did it, did it for me. And um, uh, he was five and a half years old, so he really wasn't a super old buck, but, you know, he was, he was over 230. And he just got big living in a secure place that even though it had hunting pressure, you know, he could still go about his day and, and get all the nutrition he needed, you know, all the feed he needed, the water, without really having to expose himself. And yet it wasn't so open that he didn't have to migrate out of the area either. And so, so and Brian, I could tell you 10 more bucks like it. They're not as big as him, but that, 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 that lived and died in a relatively small area. And you heard me say this at, at, at Western Hunting Summit, and I think before they migrate, most bucks live within about a square mile. Big bucks, big bucks, not all bucks, because there's places I can show you in the Wyoming range where there's deer all over it right now, and opening morning there won't be a deer standing there. It's too open, they get pushed out of there. You know, those guys riding horses in there and doing all that stuff pushes them out of there. But, you know, if, if it's a secure place, usually with about a square mile. And, and, and like I said, but if you, you know, a lot of guys, that blows their minds. Like a square mile? Are you freaking kidding me? I hunted there for a week. I didn't even see one. I'm like, I know, but think about overlay a square mile over rough country. How many little nooks and crannies, especially if it's got good cover in it, how many nooks and crannies are there that you can't even really see? You know, and so I'm going to stick to that. I could be wrong. I mean, that buck two years ago I got spanked on that I hunted 17 days. You know, obviously I didn't kill him, but I still feel like he was probably right there somewhere. But I've got seven or eight or nine or ten others that I have killed just by sticking it out because I believed that they, they, they lived in that small area. Maybe they're not there every day, but, you know, they were there the day I killed them. So I think I'm answering your question that astoundingly, yes. I believe that they're right there somewhere and my odds are best just by sticking it out right there till I get a, you know, till I, till I run out of season or there's just some other clue that makes me leave. Deep snow, tons of hunting pressure, you know, stuff like that. Hmm. Man, I find that same thing. I love that square mile. They get really good at living in their home range. They get to know it. Uh, uh, like you said, know every nook and cranny in there, you know, every pass, every saddle. And it's wild that you can sit in a location like that and not find that deer. Uh, but they're just really good at living in these small areas undetected. And, uh, you know, I, I love when I find a buck's home range because I know that's where he's going to be. And even when I find his home range, a lot of times I can find a secondary living, you know, it's linked together with that lower country with more cover and more avalanche shoots. So, I know if I've seen a buck, you know, in the early season, I know where his home range is. I know where I'm going to be looking for him to be in his secondary living. And, 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 and even from there, you know, I can, I can kind of start to predict his rutting grounds or where he might rut from that secondary living and his staging grounds. So, man, I think you're right. I think these bucks, they live in this small core area and they get really good at living in there. And usually like uh, in every buck's different. Some bucks will move and work two, three drainages. Some bucks will just work one specific spot and will be living sure. in 300 square yards and that's where he lives. And so they, they definitely can differ there. But, 
I just find that once I find that home area, that that's where that buck wants to be. And even if I blow him out or the stock doesn't go right, you know, he may disappear and usually they have like a backup place they like to live or that they know really well. And maybe it's over the ridge. Maybe it's, it's down in the cover or over a couple drainages, but I'll even find if I can't turn up that Mm -hmm, buck mm -hmm. and where he went, he'll just show Mm -hmm. back up in that home area. He just knows it so well. That's the spot he likes. And even if I blew him out of there and he knew I was hunting him two, three, four days later, he'll probably show back up in that home area because that's the country he knows and the country he likes. Uh, so yeah, I, I just think you're you're absolutely spot on, Robbie. They they just get really good at living in those small areas undetected. Tighten up their programs. You know they'll dang near go nocturnal. They just won't show themselves much. And a lot of times, even first light, like I, I don't even see them on the edge of the meadows. They'll they'll already be in the trees and starting to work towards their bedding ground. Maybe mm-hmm. I just catch them in between a couple trees. Mm-hmm. They get really good at living in that area, and they get really good at yep. at feeling the hunting pressure too. And whether that's you know more bow pressure or whether that's a rifle season like they feel it that wyoming 15th opener man the game changes about the 14th they start feeling all those horse camps coming in mm-hmm. uh, they start feeling that that hunting pressure and smelling that campfire smoke yep. and they know they know that season's coming you know it's been year after year you know it and, and so they they start hiding a little bit better come that 14th 15th you know in wyoming and same thing in these different locations they feel it yeah, yeah, and, and and you know we talking about this kind of home area, and uh, as trail cameras have become more widely available, and we've been able to track certain bucks uh, more. I, I have a pretty good story if we oh, have. Oh yeah, them absolutely. Okay, so one of the one of the best buck hunters around here is Travis Hobbs. He lives in uh, um, right on the Idaho Utah border. He's he's from Utah. And, he finally had to move up here to Idaho. Um, I tease him a lot that he's still not an Idaho resident until he's been here five years. But he, he's one of the best around here. And he documented um, two or three years ago, this was a 38-inch to a 40-inch buck. It got killed, so we, we're not blowing smoke. We know how big this buck was. And um, Travis is a, a multidiscipline hunter like me. You know, he'll, he'll hunt him with a stick or a gun or a bow, whatever. And um, um, he, he had known about this buck, I think, from the year before. And this was one of those young bucks that blew up, you know, that he'd seen the year before. It was like, you know, 190. And then the next year it's 230, you know, one of those kind of bucks. So he had trail cameras all over in this area. And it was a, it was a really thick, thick area. Um, not high country, not, not big open peaks, you know, not foothills either, but, you know, just just kind of the average mountain range in the west that doesn't get high enough for the for the wind to, to, to stun all the growth of the timber, you know, and so it's it's pretty thick all the way to the top, a lot of aspen, a lot of mahogany, a lot of maple, stuff like that. So he, he saturated the area with trail cameras. I think he had like 30. And he actually documented this buck, and, and it could have even been on someone else's trail camera, that this buck had about a two-mile straight line distance that he'd been spotted between in the same season. I'm not talking about somebody saw him on the winter range and then, you know, saw him in the summer, you know, two miles away. We're talking, you know, in the summer season. And, you know, that stuck out to me because I'm like, that's pretty far. You know, that's further than what I've been kind of thinking and, and, and coaching people. But it reminded me of it when you said a minute ago that, okay, well, maybe maybe my buck is not in his not in this core area or the secondary living today, you know, I bumped him or whatever, or there was a camp there for a couple of days and he's gone. 
but he comes back. And that was what ended up happening is Travis hunted this buck like a, like a madman. And um, uh, the buck, uh, you know, would disappear for like a week or two at a time. And he, and he just wouldn't know where he was, even with all those trail cameras. And then all of a sudden, he'd catch him on one of his cameras back in the home area. And so this buck was obviously making some type of circuit. And this was mostly before the hunting season, you know, so he wasn't really getting bumped. You know, maybe the scouters, scouters were bumping him a little bit. But this buck was still moving in this relatively bigger area than what I thought. But his chink in the armor was that he still came back. And, and, and he ended up getting killed. One of the Mossback boys killed him. And, you know, God bless those guys. They, they did it. They killed him. And, and, you know, it, it, it is what it is. I wish the DIY would, guy would have got him, but he didn't, but, but that's okay too. And, and, and this buck was a giant, giant buck. And so we, we have documentation that maybe they do move, you know, further than this mile. Than, uh, but, but this is the thing. When they do move and they move a long ways, I don't know where to go. I don't know where they're at. I'm better off to stick it out in the areas that I've seen them. Again, unless it's just something something majorly has changed. A lot of hunting pressure, you know, tons of snow, they migrated. I mean, you can't you can't be stupid about it. But I'm just better off to hang out there. That's why I stuck that buck out for 17 days that year because my best chance is that he's gonna come back to the country that he knows. And you just said it, Brian, you've seen it too. They do, they do come back there. So maybe, maybe they do move a long ways, but you're, you're, you know, to just give up and just say, oh, I'm going to go, go somewhere else. Or, you know, I'm going to go five miles away. Oh, you're never going to see that buck again. You're better off just to, 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 to hang out right where he's been, bide your time. And, and you might get lucky like I did in 2018 and you never see the buck again you're after and you end up killing another one that's bigger that you didn't even know was around because he had his own little circuit too. That, that was that buck I had on the slide at the very end as I was wrapping up Brian in the, in, in the snow, that 34-incher, when I told you I was chasing that 190 buck during archery season, and I bumped him, and I never, I didn't even really bump him. He just, he just took off, and he never came back. In, in all those days, he never came back, but another one showed up. And so I was still, I still tagged one of the whitest bucks of my life by just sticking it out in country where, where they had been before, just knowing that I'm better off than just running all over, you know, the place like I used to. Man, it's spot on. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Well, um, Robbie, uh, that book that you wrote is one of the best modern day resources for, for mule deer hunters. Uh, highly recommend you get that book, Rock Slide. Uh, how long have you guys been doing Rock Slide? What a great resource for guys. Oh, dude, thank you so much, man. We started it in 2012. Uh, Aaron Snyder, David Long, Ryan Avery, a couple other big names in the industry put it together. It's kind of an online magazine with a forum. And then, you know, as, as, as time has evolved, it's down to me and Ryan right now, Ryan Avery. Oh, by the way, he said, hello, you had him on your podcast, uh, I think, last year. And um, uh, uh, him and I running it now. So we've been at it, what are we going on, nine years right now, almost 10. I think 10 will be uh, next year. So uh, I, I, I appreciate the the, the compliment on it um you know it's a big part of uh, how i make my living and and everything and, and actually we're working with uh, eastman's right now um, working with scott reekers on getting the new tag hub out there to more people which is also a great resource for guys that are looking to up their game at drawing better tags and not just trophy tags the thing i liked about tag hub as i've been learning about it from scott is just all the opportunity tags that are on there 
don't quote me on this, but when I was talking to him last month, he said something like he's got 10,000 hunt codes on there. Did you hear that? Am I right about that, that number? wild. <laughs> yeah, I think I've heard some number like that. Isn't that wild? Like uh, just all the opportunity that is out there. And there's still big bucks that, that exist. And they exist in, in, in a lot of these units across the West. You know, it, it, it's just... It's finding these units or, or these um, uh, these ones that can produce good bucks and then building that hunting skill set. But, yeah, uh, thanks so much, Robbie. Yeah, that, that Tag Hub is a great resource. Yeah, good good resource. So, and that's like 10,000 codes for elk, deer, everything. But I thought, man, that's that's a lot. So, anyways, been working with him on that. Um, I you know, appreciate the plug for my book and just having me on. Dude, seriously, when you, when you got a hold of me last week, I was so pumped to come on this podcast because, like I said, I'm a longtime listener. And when you get cranking on mule deer, even if you don't have a guest and you're just talking about them, dude, that's when I am keyed in on your podcast. I just love your passion for them. You're, you're passionate, too, about them. I love how, how you've just stuck with archery for them. You've done fabulous on them. I've learned a lot listening to you about stocks and, you know, secondary living. You really helped kind of solidify that in my head. So I just can't thank you enough for, for having me on and everything. And, dude, I'm so pumped right now. I'm, I'm going to go to the regulations tomorrow and see if I can go deer hunting in the morning. If not, I'm going scouting. <laughs> well, that's uh, likewise uh, one of my favorite podcasts I've ever put together, Robbie. You're just an absolute wealth of knowledge. So, uh, yeah, make sure to check out everything Robbie's doing. And uh, I also want to check out that film that you had mentioned. I want to watch that as well. But, uh, man, I, I really appreciate your friendship and really glad that we were <laughs> Yeah, there's we were three of them. Meet. They're all and, uh, uh, person to person. And, and I just want to, want to keep in touch with you, man. Um, you're a, you're a heck of a mule deer and, and, uh, a heck of a person. So yeah, I'm just glad I know you. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it very much. I appreciate you checking out that film. We've got about three of them. If you just type in hunting big mule deer, they always have, have that at least as a subtitle. Cause that was the name of my book. And, you know, people can get on there and just kind of, and, and, and spoiler alert, I don't feel any tags on those on those films, but it shows all these tactics coming together for people. Oh, done deal. I know what I'm doing tonight. That's right. There you go, brother. <laughs> all right. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks you. for everything, yep. Brian. All right, guys, that's a wrap. Oh, what I tell you, what a conversation with Robbie. Man, he was just awesome on there. Uh, like I say, when, when he speaks about mule deer, I mean, some of these lessons he talks about and things that he, that he talks about, uh, it, it just takes years to be able to gain this kind of insight. I mean, um, you know, I've been spending my lifetime doing it. And so to hear another person speak on some of these things and, and, and speak on some of the things that I, you know, I learn things in this podcast as well. I'm constantly trying to improve my game and, and get better. And, um, you know, you, you get takeaways from other people and other things that they do. Uh, and, and I definitely had some great takeaways in this podcast. So make sure to check out Robbie's book, Hunting Big Mule Deer. Uh, it's a great read. I know I uh, referred to it multiple times in the podcast, but it's just because I like it so much. Uh, I'm so impressed by it. Uh, Robbie's a great guy and uh, really happy to, to be able to call him a friend. Okay, make sure to check out our sponsors. Check out uh, Cutter Stabilizers. Again, uh, this is a blue-collar company. Uh, Earl spent his hard-earned dollars to uh, partner with us at Eastman's Elevated, and... Um, Man, I mean, he's still working a second job at this point, and um, they just produce great products, and I love supporting guys like this, and, and I really appreciate Earl, his support of the podcast, and I just absolutely love his products. Those cutter stabilizers are absolutely money, uh, and they help me be a better shooter, so uh, I just appreciate him. If you're in the market for some new stabilizers, make sure to check him out. Uh, he's got weights. 
Uh, he's got a, a, a third axis bracket, or uh, not a third axis, but a, a sidebar bracket. Uh, all different sizes of stabilizers. They're just a great product. Make sure to check them out. I also want to thank Matthews Bows. Um, man, I am just, uh, you, you, <laughs> I am so in love with these bows. This, uh, this V3, um, man, I've got a good relationship with this thing. Um, already this season, I've harvested uh, uh, a bear. Uh, oh gosh, I harvested a, a, a mule deer in January. So that was the first animal with this bow. Uh, harvested that bear. Uh, harvested uh, three different animals in Hawaii. Uh, three different axis deer. Um, harvested uh, a, a mule deer on my most recent hunt. Harvested an antelope. Uh, like this thing is absolutely killing it for me. And uh, I know it's going to continue to kill it uh, because uh, I have such a good relationship with it. Um, so if you're in the market for a new bow, uh, just, just shoot one and compare it to the other bows out there. There's a lot of good brands and good bows on the market, uh, but I'm sure impressed with uh, Matthews and what they're producing. Just a forgiving shooting bow. Anyways, make sure to check out Matthews. Um, yeah, and check out Eastman's. Thanks for their support of the podcast. And uh, thank you guys for your support. Support on social media, support on this podcast. Um, we had our best month ever for the month of August, which is just incredible for me to to still be um, uh, getting uh, uh, more downloads and that you guys uh, like and connect with this podcast just means the world. And, and uh, to be able to play a small part in your guys' success um, really means a lot to me. So I appreciate you guys the most. You guys are the reason why this podcast goes. And uh, yeah, I hope it helps you this season. Um, you know, if you just pick up just a couple tips here or there that, that just help uh, make decisions or uh, uh, help you in, in your journey to be successful in Western hunting. It's, it's just, um, it's given me so much in life, uh, Western hunting and chasing my dreams and my passion and, and being able to challenge myself mentally and physically on these hunts. Uh, it, it, it just... Um, it means so much to me. And so to be able to share that through the airwaves of the podcast is amazing. So, uh, thanks you guys. Um, I'm off. I'm on the road here in the next couple hours and, uh, man, I'm going to go try to air a big mule deer. So, um, appreciate it guys. I'll check in with you next week.